Hey, welcome to Optimize Your Body with Martin Silva, where we talk raw, uncut facts to truly help you optimize your body. Hello, everyone. So I have got a guest on the line today, and he's a Welshman, which is uh, always a great start. Uh, it goes by the name goes by the name of Ash Dykes, and I actually discovered Ash on the Joe Rogan show, which uh, I'm sure all the listeners will know what the Joe Rogan show is. Is the the biggest podcast in the world, and I heard Ash on there. My friend, my good friend, said to me, "Oh, this the first ever Welshman is on uh, is on the Joe Rogan show." And I thought, "Wow, I got to check that out." And uh, thankfully, after much chasing, because Ash has uh, he's got a lot on, I managed to get get him on the show. And uh, yeah, he's in Wales right now. And how you doing, mate? Good, mate. Good to be back here in Wales, safe, alive after my most recent expedition. And calling in straight to Sydney. You were ten hours beat ten hours ahead, aren't you? That's right, mate, yeah. yeah. Nice. But yeah, good, mate. Keeping well as well as we can be during this crisis, this pandemic with the coronavirus, isn't it? But uh, as long as we're keeping productive, mm. healthy and well, that's the main thing, right? Exactly. Yeah, and how are you actually how are you actually maintaining your health now? Because obviously, you know, you you're an adventurous, right? We'll get to that now. But what are you doing to maintain your health right now, Ash? I'm just curious. Yeah, well, it's great. Nothing's actually changed for me despite this lockdown. So when I first came back from Thailand to attempt my first sort of world record expedition, I came back with very little money. So I actually moved back into my parents' house um, and I literally couldn't afford no gym membership. So I had a tractor tire dropped off by my uncle. I bought myself a sledgehammer. I was doing mainly calisthenics, which is bodyweight exercises. And I trained for three world records that way, just in my garage and just in my back garden. So now with this lockdown, I never went to any gym or used any other facilities anyway. So it's just back to the grind of what I've been doing for the past sort of six, five or six years. So um, I'm eating healthy. I'm keeping up my cardio. I'm jogging. And I am out in the garden or in the garage doing my, my calisthenics, my pull-ups, my push-ups, flipping the track that I am beating it with a sledgehammer. Uh, and so I'm hot on that right now because there's not an awful lot you can do during lockdown. So you may as well use that time to uh, for more gains, isn't it? Fitness, yeah, definitely. Health. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember, I remember you saying that now on the Joe Rogan show. And I was like, wow, that's the... Uh, that's the secret then, mate, isn't it? Old school approach, outdoors, you know, in, in, in Wales as well, yeah. in the UK, with the weather in the winter. <laughs> I remember you saying, obviously, it's, getting up first thing. Yeah, exactly that. It's grim here. So it's, when I say grim, I just mean the hardcore conditions. You know, even looking out the window now, it's it's windy, it's dark skies, it's rainy. And the last thing you want to be doing, especially at that time, you know, 5, 6 a.m., is to be out flipping truck to tires and <laughs> but there we go that's what we have to do to prepare <laughs> exactly so uh before what, about, we get... what about yourself that's good so you're from you're from wales yep as well. that's right that's right yeah just for the audience ash yeah. is from uh, north wales and mm. I'm, I'm from south wales so i'm from cardiff the capital nice how long have you been out in for? i've been out here for three years now almost Excellent. Any plans to return or was that your permanent life out there? Yeah, well, I was planning on just giving it a whirl. I wasn't really planning much when I came out here, but uh, the way it's looking, I'm most likely, you know, I've been here for three years. I'm, I'm, you know what it's like with the visa issues and stuff, so I'm just waiting for my mm. my permanent residency to come through. Uh, whether or not nice. I stay here forever, I'm not sure, but you know what it's like Got because, you. Uh, you know, family, friends, all Very that kind of stuff, you. catch up on, yeah, yeah, exactly. 
catch up on you a bit. But uh, yeah, less about me, mate. Let's uh, just share with the audience because, oh man, I don't know where to start with your with your journey. Uh, Tell it. Tell us who you are (laughs) and what you're about, Ash. Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, an adventurer or extreme athlete or explorer, and you use whichever title you want. Uh, and for the past sort of 10 years, I'm 29 years of age right now. Um, I left North Wales when I was 19 after working in various jobs to include fish and chip shop, um, lifeguarding, waiting on, uh, whilst progressing in my college course, which was an outdoor education course. Um, And in that course, I realized I was more of a hands-on practical learner. I think we learn in many different ways. And uh, after the college course, I realized I didn't want to go on to university because I found that I just learned in more of a hands-on way. And I wanted to try to save up the funds, find work, save up the funds and travel and teach myself through travels. I sort of call it the uh, the degree of life, you know, the university of life, getting out there, learning from different people, different stories, cultures, traditions. Um, and, you know, it just seemed like a bit of a, a bit of a dream, a bit too ambitious. I was 16 or 17 at the time that I had this idea to go out traveling. I thought, how can I possibly, you know, execute this? But I broke my goals down. I listed them out in section by section, was ticking them off goal by goal. Come age 19, I set out and that's when the crazy journeys begun. I didn't set out knowing that I would be in this industry or this career that I've got now. I just set out as a budget traveler. Um, and it's just sort of grew into this career very organically. Um, you know, I went to China first. I was traveling across uh, China, or mainly the East Coast, for two weeks. Um, I left China and continued my jaunts around Southeast Asia. And that's when I realized that I was very much on the beaten track, sharing the same stories, photos, experiences, as the rest of the travelers, which was fine. But, you know, I was out there for adventure. I was out there not to experience the tourist route, but to experience the, the local ways of life. And so I bought myself a bicycle, me and my friend, who I was also traveling with, Matt Norman. We bought a 10-pound bicycle or $10 bike, and we ended up, just cycling Cambodia and Vietnam. And I believe that that was the catalyst. Um, we had, when I say 10 pound bike, basket on the front, a little pink bell, no gears, no suspension. Uh, we had no map, no pump, no puncture repair kit. Um, it was really reckless, no reflective gears, no helmets, <clears throat> not even shades, you know, sunglasses for the, for the dust, uh, sand, and of course for the, for the UV rays. So really reckless, really day. I look back and think, yeah, maybe I was budgeting a little bit too much, spending about one or two pounds per day, which was great. Um, <laughs> yeah, off we went, 1,100 plus miles, cycling Cambodia, the length of Vietnam, hit by mopeds, dodged by lorries, chased by dogs. It was insane. But over two weeks later, we made it. And that was the catalyst. That's when I realized my passion and love for adventure. And I didn't want to stop, so I uh, so I didn't. <laughs> amazing, mate, amazing. So that's how it all started. But that, I mean, that at a young age, like 19 you were then, right? I mean, that is enough to mm-hmm. give you the itch for a start, but just to survive a journey of pretty much cycling, right? You said across Vietnam and Cambodia. That's it, yeah, just... Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's a world record within itself, isn't it? That's another one, isn't it, surely? <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately not, but... Hey, maybe with those ten-pound bikes. Yeah, yeah, it? exactly. We only cycled past a few other westerns. I think only two or three other westerners we saw on that journey, also on a cycling trip. You know, 
Um, but they had the proper gear, you know, the helmet, the aerodynamic suits, the, the pumps, the puncture, the proper panniers. Whereas we just found string on the side of the road. And we used that string to, to you know, tie our rucksacks onto the back of the bike. <laughs> and off we went with a tent that wasn't even waterproof because it only cost us five pounds. Wow. So we definitely learned the hard way. Uh, we sort of knew what we were getting ourselves in for. We would like cycle, catch up to lorries if it was a steep hill. And we would hold on the back of these lorries and the lorries would just be pulling us up, you know. Jeez, the man. guys would be leaning out their windows, get off. Get off our lorries! And we're like, oh, we're enjoying it. Keep going. <laughs> so we were definitely, um, you know, late teenagers, really, weren't we? Nineteen. So good times. <laughs> amazing times. Amazing times. Yeah. Um, in terms of your, your Joe Rogan experience, right? Because as I said, you featured on the Joe Rogan podcast, which is. You know, I mean, they get hundreds of millions of downloads a month. It's the biggest. I mean, I'm a massive fan of Joe Rogan as well. And uh, how how was he? First, yeah. Firstly, how was he as a person? I bet he was cool. Awesome, mate. Awesome. As soon as we uh, went into his studios, we were greeted by a security who were top blokes, you know, showed us around the studio, uh, made us feel welcome, made us feel comfortable. Then I bumped into um, Joey Diaz. I saw so I went no in after Joe Diaz. So um, bumped into Joey, had a bit of a, a chat. Then Joe came out from his recording studio from when they were just doing the podcast. And straight away there was, you know, he's a cool guy to be around. He just makes you feel welcome, makes you feel comfortable. You know, uh, cracking jokes as well, making you laugh. Of course, being a comedian, he's a funny guy anyway, isn't he? Yeah. So he is. um, and then he showed me this this sort of coffee making machine that he's. Uh, that he's got, which is it's got turmeric in. It's meant to be like one of the world's healthiest. Yeah, coffees. I remember him talking about that. Yeah, um, yeah, I tried that. That was great. And then straight away we walk in to the into the studio, which is a lot bigger than it looks on the YouTube podcast. Oh, really? It looks like it's all an intimate. It does. Yeah. The tables massive. The room is quite. Uh, it's quite a large room. Um, so yeah, that's quite deceiving. I walked down, I was like, wow, this is a decent size actually, but it's completely soundproof as well. So you can't hear anyone outside and they can't hear what's going on on the inside. And yeah, he was just a great host, very welcoming. Uh, and we went on for two and a half hours, I think. And still, even after the show, we were still talking and talking and talking. And it's like, we could have gone on for a lot longer, to be honest. But Mate, uh, That's so cool. Yeah, crazy. Uh, it was good, man. It was man, good. That's the real um, deal. get back on there again after the next um adventure mm. whatever that will do we'll exactly. get to that <laughs> yeah yeah we'll get to that and speaking of adventures right so it all started out mm. as you just explained then uh pretty much yeah. cycling across the whole of vietnam and cambodia off to a flying star and then i think it was 2014 right you did mongolia so you did the whole length was it 1600 miles or something like that have i got that wrong yeah uh, 1500 miles for the mongolia 1600 for the madagascar but but even before mongolia so in between the vietnam cycle and mongolia there was a good space of three three to four years uh it was in 2010 that i did the cycle after that cycle within the space of a month i think it was uh, me and my friend went over to thailand and then we actually crossed via the jungle into Myanmar, into burma and we came across a burmese hill tribe who took us in, who accepted us, and they pretty much taught us how to hunt, how to survive, uh, how to gather and build rafts, pretty much jungle survival. Um, They were teaching us berries that act as mosquito repellent. They were teaching us how to build shelter using natural resources or rafts as well. So that was amazing, and that was, again, another another spin off the back of the Vietnam cycle. That sort of confirmed even more that, wow, this this is amazing. 
I was I was in that jungle, sort of uncomfortable. There were ants, spiders, you know, crawling all around you as you sleep. And when you wake up and you see a, you sort of ants soldiering down your bedding, which is a banana leaf. And for the first couple of nights, I was a bit on edge. But then eventually, and that's where I sort of would say that the, the saying um, related so much with myself was eventually you start getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. Mm. I think it was the third, third morning that I woke up and I saw the ants and for the first time I just wasn't bothered uh, and fell straight back to sleep. You know, they didn't want anything to do with me. I didn't want anything to do with them. They were just using my banana leaf as a sort of bridge to get over camp to where they're trying to get to. And they were carrying carrying leaves and stuff, you know, to them. them So it was great. Yeah, little stuff like that that I was like, whoa, okay, this is cool. I was still 19. I continued that. Uh, I then went over to Australia. I was cycling across parts of Australia from Melbourne to Adelaide over the Great Ocean Road. Loved it. was working as a fruit picker. I was working as a a salesman, knocking door-to-door selling Australian power and gas, Uh, hitchhiking across the northern part of Australia. It was great, uh, but Australia, for for myself at that time, age 19, it was too expensive. I'd love to go back now with, with finance, you know. I only lasted three months out of a 12-month, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Yeah, mate, it's so expensive. Uh, but I went back to Asia. It's expensive, but it's no more expensive than the UK, really. No, especially uh, it's London. It's just that I was in that... Yeah, exactly. I was just in that Asia way, you know. The Vietnam cycle, I was spending $1, $2 a day. Yeah, know? exactly. Um, hammock shops, I think, were 20 pence. You sleep in a hammock shop overnight, you, you, they'll charge you 20 pence. So, I, I, you know, if you're going to do that way around, you should do Australia and then go to Asia, not Asia to Australia because yeah, yeah. you'll be hit. And Whoa, hold on, I didn't prepare for this. Uh, so that's all. But when I left Australia, after three months, I still went back to um, India, trekking the Himalayas. And it was at that point that money was really... Um, you know, the funds were decreasing massively. So it was now time to act on my previous plan, which I had here in Wales. I always said to my friend before we set off for traveling age 17, 18, I said, that's all good going out traveling, but we will be forced to return home because we'll run out of money. So it's important we find a qualification, we invest in ourselves, find us a job that we can uh, then apply and find work around the world. And we chose scuba diving for that. So we did our scuba diving qualifications here in the UK, started them here, finished them in Thailand, and then progressed. And I was then working as a, as a master scuba diving instructor uh, and Muay Thai fighter in Thailand, in Koh Tao and Koh Lipe for the next two years. So all of this sort of happened before the Mongolia. So there was a lot of adventures that just kept, you know, I was, I was getting more adventures under my belt, getting more experience, which experience is, is key for everything we do in life, really, isn't it? 100%. Um, but yeah, that was a big jump, hey, from scuba diving next to an ocean to then isolated solo walking across a desert yeah. in Mongolia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, like you said, there was the progressive build-up towards that, right, which builds your character, shapes who you are. Yeah. But that, that's what I found really yeah. intriguing when you talked about um, having the, you know, the Muay Thai fight. And um, yeah, and you, you fought against a tie out there, right? And... It was, yeah. Wasn't it like a stadium champ or a stadium champion or something like that? And you won the fight, right? Yeah, he wasn't a champion, but he had six. He had six fights and he was undefeated. Uh, and that was my first stadium fight. Of course, I had many club fights. You know, club versus club fights. Yeah, yeah. Um, but with the stadium fight, the tie actually sailed over from mainland. 
Uh, and that's where the most money can be earned because the loser goes home with nothing. So he's obviously coming to find me. If he wins, he takes money home for him and his family. Uh, I was really um, not earning much money then either. So that would pay for three, maybe four months of accommodation, of rent if I was to win. So I, I was training like a madman hard. And I'd done a lot of boxing here in Wales prior as well. Um, and I'd just been keen into the fitness. So we went at it. And I think he got a little bit, and maybe a little bit too cocky. I think I, I assume that he thought he would run through me because he got wind that this was my first stadium fight. Um, so he just came in a little bit more relaxed, guard down, a little bit cocky, if anything. Uh, whereas I was nervous. I was a little bit like, oh, my God. You know, I was trying to remember all of my training. Um, I remember most nights I was up beating my shins with like a book or a plank of wood trying to kill my nerve endings. Uh, but I felt confident in the previous club fights, which went on for the for the full rounds. Uh, and I went in there and, yeah, I got my, that was my fastest knockout. That was 12-second knockout in the first round. Two roundhouse kicks and a, and a left. Um, so I left with the money. <laughs> really? I didn't <laughs> realise I didn't realize it was a 12-second knockout. I assumed it went the distance. Yeah, well, I'd, I didn't want to mention that on the road oh, podcast because yeah. it's a little bit big headed. Yeah, you should have though, man. So I, I would have I wouldn't have cared. <laughs> I would have been all over yeah. that. Straight away. Twelve yeah. seconds just to put and it out there. The video's on YouTube as well. Oh um, really? The actual knockout. Yeah, it's on YouTube, yeah. But I'll I'll get on that. So it's um yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, You'll especially with I Joe mean, Rogan because Joe, Joe Rogan's obviously a black belt in uh, jiu-jitsu, right? And and you'd have been like, oh, I don't want to. Yeah. yeah, I understand that, but I would have been my ego yeah, would have exactly, just been yeah. straight on it. <laughs> I thought first appearance as well. I don't want to be like, yeah, go by knockout to a second. I know, I know, I don't normally mention that at all, to be honest. But yeah, yeah. Um, but mate, just to get in the ring, though, just talk, talking about the mental, you know, the discipline and the mindset behind it, though, right? All of these experiences. I mean, like my my yeah. girlfriend's actually she she lived out in Thailand for a year. And she had nice. like six fights out there, and she fought. She had, and, uh, yeah, she had six fights out in Thailand. She won oh, five. Fighting Muay Thai, yeah. Yeah, yeah, doing Muay Thai. So I don't, I don't mess around with her, mate. You know what I mean? Because uh, anything, anything <laughs> could happen. You know, I don't want to get a roundhouse <laughs> kick to the head. Be, be yeah. down. I'll be down in twelve seconds, mate, for sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, devastating, eh? But you saw uh, what Holly Holm did to Ronda Rousey, hey, with that roundhouse kick. Oh, Her background was a bit of Muay Thai, wasn't it? Yeah, Jeez. yeah, exactly. I mean, that was ridiculous. Brutal. That. Brutal, brutal. Ridiculous, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. but so, so but, uh, following, following on from that then, so what was the next step then? Yeah. The next, uh, the next big challenge? So I was, you know, whilst I was living out in Thailand, for a long, for the best part of a year, I was always thinking to myself, this is a great lifestyle, but I'm feeling a little bit restless, you know? I, I started to, to really, like, really miss my adventures in Vietnam, my time with the the Burmese Hill Tribe, uh, trekking the Himalayas, cycling Australia. I started to miss these adventures. And it came to a point where I just couldn't ignore what I was really passionate about. It didn't make sense because I thought, well, I can't just be continuing to go on jollies. I can't keep doing these adventures because how am I going to earn money? I can't just be, you know, but the whole reason why I got scuba diving was that maybe I could jump from country to country. I was also looking at getting my snowboarding instructors as well so that I could move with the seasons, scuba dive in a hot country um, and then go off during the winter season to um, Canada or wherever to, to teach snowboarding. And so that's that was my thinking. But, you know, adventure was calling. I couldn't ignore it anymore. Uh, I took for myself was probably one of the biggest risks. I'd worked my way up to one of the top rankings of scuba diver. Um, 
only one below course director, which is the top. And I was about to give all of that up to go on an adventure. And this adventure, I was looking at a place in Asia, somewhere that I could get to um, from Thailand. And I was looking to not do a cycle this time because cycling's great, uh, great for fitness, great for adventure as well. But the way I see it is if you're on a bike, you're on a road. If you're on a road, you come across people. If you come across people, you come across food and water, which means that survival and safety, it, you're all right, apart from the traffic, of course. Yeah, sure. So my idea was if I go by, by foot, I can go places where you where bicycles can't go, where cars can't go, which means that I'll be relying on myself to survive that situation, you know? Yep. And and then I had the idea of maybe pulling some sort of trailer where I could carry a certain amount of provisions. Um, and then I was looking at pro- the most unfam- the most extreme country I could find in Asia um, or, you know, in the world, really. I was looking, what is that country that I'm completely unfamiliar with that I know nothing about, and Mongolia, it stood out. You know, Mongolia is a place I feel people know that word, but you know what comes to mind when you think of Mongolia? You know, mm. sandwiched in between China and Russia, um, bordered with Kazakhstan. You know, no one really knows much about. In two thousand and nine, this was I was thinking. Uh, no, when was it? Two thousand and eleven. Sorry. Um, so yeah, I was just like, well, why don't I attempt to walk a part of Mongolia, or maybe the the you know, north to south, yeah. or then maybe the length. And I was thinking, well, that would be 1,500 miles. Um, and then I was looking at the terrains. I realized it was home to the Gobi Desert, home to the Altai Mountains, to the Mongolian Steppe. I know you've got the eagle hunters um, that hunt down foxes and wolves on horseback with an eagle in their hand. I know you've got the, the reindeer tribesmen up north, the camels down south. That's about it. That's all as I knew, you know. Uh, and, I, and it's the second most sparsely populated country in the world, which means that it would be a lot of survival because I couldn't, I wouldn't be coming across many people. And so when I had that idea, I was like, right, okay, time to find those people who have done it before because I plan to do it solo and unsupported, and ask them for tips, for help, for advice. And I got various different teams on board: team in the UK, team in Mongolia, because if anyone's done this, it's going to be a Mongolian. And apparently not, you know, the Mongols see it as quite stupid, quite reckless. You know, if you walk across the country, which they do all of the time because they're nomads, they're constantly traveling, but they do it with a community. They do it with family. They do it with, with camels or with yaks. They'll carry the stuff for them, which means um, that when I'd be going, I couldn't take a camel because that would be supported. And I couldn't have anyone with me because that wouldn't be solo. So that's why this one was a specific solo and unsupported world record. But we didn't know it was a world record at that time until we, couldn't find any evidence to suggest that anyone had completed this. But we did find someone who had attempted from England. Uh, he attempted three times, unfortunately had to abandon the expedition on all three occasions just before the halfway point. Um, I think that was due to injury and dehydration. He just couldn't get past that halfway point. And then I started to become massively intimidated because I looked into this guy and he was a Navy soldier he was a desert explorer. He trekked across the Sahara with a caravan of camels before, just on his own. Um, and I was a 22-year-old living on a beach, you know? So yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to put things into perspective. I wrote to him, asked him the dangers. He was a good guy. In all fairness, he did get back. It was this list of intimidating dangers. Look out for the grey wolves, the drunken nomadic drifters, the dry wells, the steep ravines, sandstorms, snow blizzards. Um, and the list just went on and on. And eventually I 
got Mongolia out of my mind. I thought, this is too dangerous, it's too risky. Maybe look at doing a country that I'm more familiar with that's safe. Uh, but as when I realized, you know, just because no one's found a way to do something, it doesn't mean it can't be done. And I knew that if I broke my goals down, if I, unlike the Vietnam cycle, if with this one I, I study it, I do meticulous planning, I know and learn how to overcome each of the challenges, know what I'm up against and train, train, train physically as well as mentally and have the right, the right logistical team, the right knowledge on the ground, then maybe I can do this. And so that's when I decided to go for it. So I moved back from Thailand, back to the UK. I was training in my back garden. You know, I didn't have no evacuation plan in terms of a helicopter like the previous guy. I didn't have that budget. I went out there with very minimal funds. Um, even my satellite was text only, you know, and my trailer wasn't built in a factory. It wasn't carbon fiber. It was built in a family friend's back garden and it was made of mild steel. So on an empty load, it was already 40 kilograms. On a full load, it was between 100 and 120 kilograms. So it was heavy, but it was strong. It was robust. Uh, and as much as I had so much fear, and I probably had a little bit of doubt as well, because this was the first biggest thing that I had done. I was more scared of Mongolia than I was probably with Madagascar and Mission Yangtze because with Madagascar and Mission Yangtze, I knew how I react in certain scenarios. I knew what type of person I am. Um, but with Mongolia, I didn't. I didn't know how I'd react to a pack of wolves potentially approaching me to a sandstone. Didn't know how I'd react to, to dehydration. None of that. So I held a lot of fear, but I went for it. I went for it regardless. I broke my goals down. A lot of people were saying it was impossible, hence the book name, Mission Possible. Uh, a lot of people who had been there as well. And that's when me and my logistics manager, we broke Mongolia down. And this is important, I think, for the listeners as well, because I, I believe you can do this in anything in life, uh, whatever you're trying to achieve. Um, is with the Mongolia, it was 1,500 miles. It was anticipated to take 100 days. So instead of looking at the 100 days, I will and maybe break it up into three sections, the Altai Mountain, the Gogu Desert, and Steppe. We broke it up by the day. We looked at every single day, and we were looking for that impossible day. And by doing that, we realized that every day is possible. As long as I have the right water, the right food, there isn't an impossible day. So when these people say it's impossible, which bit? And we were looking for that for that bit, for that impossible day, which we couldn't find. And that put my mind at a bit more rest. I think it's easier for people to just say no or be negative or say it can't be done mm. than it is to take the time out to study, uh, to research and realize that actually it, it, it can be done. Um, so I went for it and it was a crazy, crazy adventure. And oh, that was mate. the catalyst I was for the career. Okay, so what were the what were the bigger other than catching malaria and almost dying, right? Um, actually, it's yeah. a silly question. I was going to say, what's the biggest challenge? But I think I just answered it, right? Maybe I don't know. <laughs> what for the Mongolia? Actually? Yeah. Oh, sorry. This this was Mongolia, wasn't it? Where you had the malaria, or did I get that yeah, wrong? This is all Mongolia. So the malaria was in Madagascar. Ah, oh, sorry, I thought expedition. it was Mongolia. Got it mixed up. Oh, no, no worries. But with the Mongolia one, many many challenges with the Mongolia one. Um, the isolation was quite extreme. I was you know, going to ask you about that because that's relative right now. Yeah, that's an appropriate thing to talk about. Yeah, How, yeah, there the you go. Went without, yeah. without, um, what was the longest you went without actually seeing any any humans when you were doing uh, Mongolia? Over, over eight days. Over really? eight days. Jesus. No humans. No no one. Nothing. Not even any wildlife at that point because I was in the Gobi Desert, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was in the Gobi Desert for five weeks. 
but there was just a certain section that just was a lot wilder than the rest of the Gobi Desert uh, of what I experienced anyway. So, yeah, I went a long time without seeing to the point where, obviously, you probably heard on the podcast when I spoke about silence, to the point of where I could hear nothing. Um, it was complete silence, you know, and I'd warned, I was warned by my logistics manager because I, I made a statement, wow, can you imagine how quiet the Gobi Desert's going to be? I'm going to experience silence for the first time. And he said that there's no such thing as silence. And I was like, what do you mean there's no such thing as silence? And that's when I experienced it. It was just so quiet. No wind, no insects, no cars, no people, no noise pollution coming from anywhere. Uh, I could hear the faintest noise, like a tiny little humming noise that I thought, maybe that's my 20-litre uh, water container on my trailer, you know, leaking air or whatnot. So I left my trailer. I walked a couple of hundred metres away from it, sat down, held my breath, was just listening for that humming sound, and I could still hear it. And I was like, what the hell is that? You know, I thought maybe that's the sand, because I know that you can get sand, sort of, I forgot what it's called, but the sand, if it's constantly moving, moving it will create like a whistling, like a humming noise. Yep. Uh, but I wasn't in the dunes. There were no dunes where I was. I was in the gravel section of the Gobi Desert, far from any dunes. Um, and yeah, that's when I realized that it's at the point of silence so much, I'm at a point of nothingness that I can actually hear my own body functioning. Mm. And as long as you're alive, there's no such thing as silence. Because if you're lucky to experience the point of no outside noise, you're going to be hearing your, you know, your body. Yeah. It's a complex thing. It's going through Definitely. a lot. Well, you can imagine. What it was. Yeah, from, from an evolutionary standpoint as well, you would think then your hearing would be even more efficient, right? <laughs> and certain senses right. are going to be heightened, right? Because so, your, your body knows there's no one else around or wherever it is. But, um, 100%. What was yeah. It? yeah, did you notice that? Did you because you breathe in your footsteps? Was there anything you can remember in terms of what? I know you said you could hear the sand every now and then, but what was it actually like in terms of your senses and stuff? Or your smell? I don't know. I'm just curious. Just so alert, so alert. It's almost like our senses are capped at seventy percent, eighty percent, and when you're out there, um, it's almost like there are a hundred percent. You know. Just little things, little things. Like I was pulling the trailer and I'd see like little insects. I'd almost hear them before I saw them. And then I would move out of the way because I didn't want my wheels on the trailer to crush them, of course. Just little stuff because you're walking 15 hours a day. You pick up little habits like that as well. Mm. Um, you're always judging the weather as well. Like here, I don't know, you don't really look at it. Like you do look at the sky if you're looking to go for a cycle or a walk or whatnot. But you're not as good as telling the weather. When I was out in Mongolia, I was very good at, at being able to tell which direction the storm, which is still miles away, which direction it's going to go and how long it will take to get to me and what time I should prepare for it. Little stuff like that, you know, which mm -hmm. is amazing. That I forget about now, so I, I forgot about it now. It's just that's a good yeah. question that you asked. Is uh, Yeah, for sure, your senses are alive, even at night. I remember at that stint when I was walking through the Gobi Desert, I was in my tent. I hadn't seen people in days, but all of a sudden, before it approached my tent, I could hear something from the distance. Just weird. I couldn't make out that they were footsteps at this time. I could. I just there was something not quite right, and I remember being awake. But then the footsteps would get louder, and the next thing, my tent was being circled. There was someone outside my tent it was pitch black. It was like one in the morning. Um, I was in the middle of nowhere in the Gobi Desert. I was terrified. You know, I was like, "What the fuck is that outside my tent?" I can hear it breathing as well. And so, like, very slowly, I remember just, you know, a knife in one hand, torch in the other. The torch was off. 
I just remember breathing super slow, just trying to listen for everything, listen to around my tent. Um, but I unzipped my tent and it was a semi-wild dog. Not not aggressive either. Wow. Just there. And then it just slept near my trailer. And then 5 a.m., I remember again, it barked. It woke up, started barking. And then it chased something. It ran after something. I was just like, what's it? What did it see? And I'm in the middle of the desert. And where did it come from? I'm in the middle of the desert. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? That was just three hours that it was with me for. It was about one o'clock till about, yeah, maybe four or five o'clock. And then it just ran off. And I was just like, little things like that. You yeah, know, yeah, that yeah. Just like, wow. And that, well, that was within the eight I days of not seeing any, any humans, right? That was? I think that was on day seven. Day yeah, seven. And what was the first, seven. who was the first human you saw? And how did you feel when you first came across, you know, humans? Amazing. I came across, um, it was a yurt, so a yurt, a little white felt tent in yep. the distance. Sometimes the land is so vast in Mongolia that you could clock onto it, but it would still take you maybe half a day to walk to it. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, which is crazy, really, isn't it? You know, so you'd see it and you can't get too excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> still like, I still got a day to get there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, they were always so welcoming. You know, you just rock up with a big smile. Um, they see that you pull in a trailer. They must be there. They're a little bit perplexed. Like, what the hell are you doing out here? Uh, but they invited me in. They would give me what, whatever food they have, water. Their wife. Uh, is that the right? Is this the right? Am I on the right track? So have I, have I jumped ahead again? Is this the one where they offered you? The guy offered you his wife. Is that right? That was in Mongolia. Yeah, that was actually the first two weeks of the expedition. So that's previous to this Gobi Desert. Talk us through that so briefly. That, mate. That'd be good to hear because uh, for the listeners, that was insane, wasn't it? So I was high on the Altai Mountains, maybe about two and a half, three thousand meters altitude. Just pulling the trailer, you know, up and down the, the the mountains, and I came across a, a concrete hut. This was owned by a Kazakh family. Uh, it's predominantly Kazakhs in the west of Mongolia that migrate from Kazakhstan and I approached uh, they invited me inside very nice I had their Kazakh chai um, they were giving me some snacks I was just relaxing for maybe about 40-45 minutes I remember looking at my time thinking okay that's uh, quite a stint and that was a sort of hut that was in the in the middle of the rocky sort of mountains it was maybe minus 10 degrees Celsius very windy very snowy quite an eerie atmosphere so it's you know, you get quite comfortable inside that warm goo, you know, you oh, don't yeah. take a bit of courage to be like, oh no, I've got to get up and push on. And it was only like 11 o'clock in the morning, so I had a whole day ahead of me pretty much. Oof. And so I was enjoying that time inside their goo. And then anyway, when it came at that time to, to leave, I was thinking, right, yeah, I should make a move now. But just as I was thinking that, I looked up to the looked up to the owner of the, the hut, the guy, and he was just looking at me very weird, you know, slightly just concentrating almost. Uh, and then he was looking at me, and then he was looking at his, his wife, or his girlfriend, you know, looking back at me and looking at his wife. And I was thinking, what's going on here? The next minute, right there and then, in hand gestures, he just pointed at myself, pointed at his wife, and pointed at the bed and did this. <laughs> pretty much off. Jeez. Offered me his wife right there and then. I, it took me a few seconds. I didn't click straight away. You're not going to click, are you? you no, not click, at you all. Know? Not at all. It's just you like, know? when does that ever happen? Yeah, you're thinking of everything that it could be, except for the obvious, because you're yeah, like, yeah. oh, surely that's simple. Surely he's not saying that. Um, and I didn't know what to do. I was going to say, you how did you saying? react? Just shocked. Uh, it took Just a few shocked. seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It took a few seconds and he said yes, yeah? I'm joking. <laughs> you're like, come on, mate, why not? Uh, and then I, 
and then I put on a fake laugh, you know, just yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> awkward laugh, yeah. Uh, and then, it, and then a couple of seconds later, he joined in as well. He laughed, um, and then I just sort of looked at his wife, looked at him. Time it was that go. awkward, awkward thing where we're all just sort of exchanging looks, um, and then that was it. You know, she carried on breastfeeding her child, uh, <laughs> and I made a swift exit. I got myself out of there. Very, very, very hospitable indeed. But um, there we go. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Gone. And um, yeah, so so what was the most challenging part of that then? I mean, obviously you went eight days without seeing humans. As you got towards the end of that 1,500 miles, I mean, your body must have been, you were like, what, 23 at that, uh, that time? Yeah, 23 at that time. Yeah, but the most difficult has to be uh, very nearly dying of dehydration. So there was a stint, the Gobi Desert was a five-week uh, trek. It was three weeks over the Altai Mountains, five weeks across the Gobi Desert, three weeks with the Mongolian steppe. And there was a time in the Gobi Desert, I was pulling the trailer, that I was suffering and becoming lower and lower on, on water. I was becoming skinnier, I was becoming weaker. I had to ration my water. So I was going from dehydration to heat exhaustion on my way to heat stroke, which is usually fatal. To give you an example of the desert, so it's 40 plus degrees Celsius. There's no breeze. There's no natural shelter. Uh, the wheels, they're, they're uh, puncture-proof, thin tires on the trailer, so they're now sinking into what is often soft sand. It's a mix of gravel and soft sand. Got you. So this 18-stone trailer, which is the same weight as a heavyweight boxer, uh, is now feeling more like 20, 30 wow. stone. You know, it's like putting a concrete block through hell. It's not moving. And that's like 120 so kilos, yeah, just for the listeners. It's about 120. 100, yeah, that's yeah, a lot of weight. 120 man. kilograms, which is about, I think, when I converted it to pounds, about 260 pounds, I think. So that was like double your um, weight at the time then, right? Just for context, that was probably about double your weight, pretty much. Your yeah, body almost, weight. pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah at that point, yeah, when you're exactly withering, withering away, right? <laughs> yeah, withering away. Um, I started hallucinating. I was oh, delirious. I was in agony. Uh, I could almost feel my organs drying up. And this went on for, well... Probably without me feeling it, uh, week by week, I was slowly suffering with dehydration without me realizing maybe. Um, but the days went by and it was the, the final few days that it really hit me. Uh, and I couldn't help but hide under my trailer, escape from the sun. I was in a bad way. And as I said, I didn't have that helicopter pickup. I knew that this would be the biggest risk. I was hoping it didn't happen, but I tried best to visualize um, what this scenario would feel like and how I would react to it. Uh, I continued so much that I missed the point of backup. My only backup was my agent based in the capital city of Ulaanbaatar. I would contact him by text only, and it would take him at least three to four days to get to me if he found me. Uh, the Gobi Desert's a big place. Um, or, so three to four days to get to me with another day or two to get me out of there. So let's say five, six days or four days of walking to where I know there is a community. Uh, one of my wells that I passed was dry. So that's why I'm now lower on water. It was a dry well, which we had planned. We you know we anticipated. I was always trying to carry water um, in the expectancy that the next well could be dry. So allow to get at least two, two of the wells were dry. I would have been screwed. But at this one scenario, I knew that, okay, this well's dry. I'm now going to really suffer. But I know that the next community has water because there's people living there. So that was my goal. But at this point, now we're at my worst. 
I still had four days to get to this community. I had missed the point of uh, pickup. The only way was to keep getting up and keep walking. I was spending a good 45 minutes to an hour under my trailer. Um, my legs were burning. It was only my top half that could fit under my trailer. So my legs were just melting out in the sun, uh, rationing the last dribbles of water uh, in a bad way, complete agony, feeling my organs drying up almost. And I just couldn't visualize at that time. I always believe in breaking the goals down, visualizing. But at that point, I couldn't visualize four days. Four days was a hell of a time. Yeah. Um, bad enough thinking, like walking for another hour. But what I, what I did then that changed everything was I just focused on, I knew that there was an option of dying. You know, if I don't keep getting up and pushing on, I'm going to quite easily die out here in the Gobi Desert and just be like the camel uh, camel carcasses that I'm walking past um, but what I could visualize is 100 meters you know I could see 100 meters so there was no excuse why I couldn't attempt to, to cover the 100 meters and rest only allow myself no more than five minutes under my trailer yeah. instead of an hour so by staying almost regimented and having a routine and now blocking out the option of potentially dying and only focusing on one option which is the only option which is to survive and and focus on the goal of 100-meter segments. By doing that, although very painful, I did just about make it to that community. Uh, I was in an awful state. It took me eight days to rest with these locals before I could recover, um, before I could even push on. My, my urine was almost black. I was having nightmares. Sometimes I couldn't sweat. Sometimes I was sweating uh, profusely. Uh, nightmares at night. Uh, off pattern of sleep awful temperature my body just was hit hard and it didn't really know what it was going through and so it took a while for it to to recover uh, and I couldn't really get myself any healthy foods you know uh, in Mongolia the only sort of fruit vegetables that grow is potato and carrot mm. um, you can't really grow anything else out there so I was sticking to mainly meat you know dumplings uh, pies which isn't really the medicine food that you need yeah, during this course. struggle. But I did manage to just about recover, um, and I made the decision to, to push on and get the expedition done. This is It was at this point that the previous guy had been evacuated, you know, three times, probably what, about 100 miles before uh, the point that I was starting to suffer with dehydration. But that's also what he was suffering with. Um, so I knew that that was you know, that was the potential risk that I could face what he faced and bail or it's not even bailing. It's, you know, saving your life, which you did the right thing. Or if I can find a way to get through this, that's the difference between succeeding or failing. Um, and so I did get through. I knew that the worst was behind me. Uh, I learned from that. I've never been dehydrated on any of my expeditions since Mongolia. Touch wood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I managed to yeah push on to the finish line after 78 days. Yep. Um, so knocking a good amount of days off the predicted time that it would take me in spite of that. And completing that journey, becoming the first recorded person to walk solo and unsupported across Mongolia. And then that expedition was the game changer yep. from there. It, you know, I always, I always told myself uh, with this Mongolia mission, because planning for the Mongolia trip, I always knew that there was a potential of me I've been able to continue doing what I loved, doing what I was passionate about, <clears throat> which is these adventures. But with that Mongolia journey, I always believed that, you know, I like the saying, explore to conserve. Uh, now we're not exploring to find new land. It's not really exploring in that essence. 
Um, I believe that with these adventures that I take on and explorations, if I can give something back, if I can raise awareness or raise funds um, or share stories that wouldn't have otherwise been known, if I can do something worthwhile on these trips, then it makes the trips even more better. So with that, I was raising awareness about climate change and the effects that it has on the nomadic way of life uh, in, Mon in Mongolia in general. And I was also raising funds for the Red Cross who helped the nomads during the harsh winter, winter conditions. Um, and so with these ties of a, a world record and raising funds and awareness, <clears throat> there was um, there were talks, there were presentations, there were features on TV channels like Discovery, Daily Planet, etc. And that's when I could see something. I could then see how we could potentially progress with this as a, as a career uh, and that maybe this is only just the beginning. Uh, and so, yeah, Mongolia. So Vietnam was the catalyst for adventures altogether. Mongolia was the catalyst for the career. Mm. And from then we just kept, we just kept shooting up. Mm. Wow. Wow. And then um, obviously the following year, then you, uh, you jumped at Madagascar and yes. And, and t tell us about the biggest challenges you faced there. Cause I know you actually had malaria then and you managed to then, uh, as you were saying, then you, 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 you started an awareness thing then for malaria as well. Right. Following on that, which I just read up about then. That's it. In 2018, yeah, yeah. so yeah, yeah. Tell us about that, mate. That's fast. How the My hell are you still good. here, mate? I'm looking at you, good. and I'm like, this guy so, was a dead man walking so many times. <laughs> here, here he is, yeah. just yeah, madness. Yeah, I shouldn't. I shouldn't be here. Should, I oh, shouldn't that's be awesome, here. though, man. There's been you. too many near deaths for such a young age. Oh, amazing, um, though, mate. But amazing. we try to get better. We try to minimize those risks as best as we can. Madagascar was crazy, man. And I think when you look at Madagascar and you look at Mongolia. Uh, the majority of people see Mongolia as the big one, you know, uh, whereas Madagascar was actually the bigger one. Uh, it was only 100 miles longer than Mongolia, but it took almost double the duration. I was the I was attempting to become the first recorded person to walk from the southern point of Madagascar to the most northern point of the island. But rather than the coastal way, I'd be coming across some, not often, you know, but some beach resorts and you know, uh, we come across more people, more food, more water. I decided to take the interior because a logistics manager out in Madagascar, who's pretty much the face of adventure on the island, called Jules, and he put it to me that, why don't you trek? You know, whilst you're trekking the entire length, why don't you trek the interior via its mountainous route? So my, Madagascar sort of has a mountain range that lies central east of the island, almost the entire length, almost like the Himalayan mountain range, but of Madagascar, Got not you. so high, 3,000 meters max, uh, or just below, but jungle mountains, you know, very tough. Um, and so as soon as he put that my way, <clears throat> I was like, yeah, done. Let's walk the length of Madagascar via its interior along the mountain ridge. But I also decided to summit the eight highest mountains as I do that. <clears throat> And um, and so this was a 1,600-mile journey. It took me 155 days to complete. I partnered up with this one, with the Lima Network Conservation, uh, that have 60 organizations on the ground helping to preserve and protect all of the unique biodiversity of the island. Uh, you know, bear in mind, like 80% of all plant life and wildlife found in Madagascar is found nowhere else in the world, which makes it incredibly unique. And it's what attracted me to to the uh, to the island. It's the fourth largest island in the world. I'd also be coming across more locals. That's what I'm about with my journeys, my expeditions. It's about coming across the locals, you know, getting their story, experiencing their way of life and sharing that with the rest of the world. So 
I found with Mongolia, I wasn't coming across many locals because there's only 4 million people that, that live in Mongolia, despite how enormous the country is. Um, yet 2.5 to 3 million of those are based in the capital city. So you're not coming across many locals in the wilderness. So with Madagascar, I knew that I'd be coming across more locals, uh, which I loved. So I was partnering up with that organization, the Lima Network Conservation. I was share, I partnered up with the tourism to share and show the beauty of Madagascar uh, in places that tourists rarely ever go or some parts have never been before. Um, but the challenges were insane, man. Every single day, there was a challenge. I was held up at gunpoint by the military. Uh, I had to avoid bandits. So we tried to utilize the jungles to hide from the bandits, but then realized that the bandits were using the jungles to hide from the military. So we had to scramble out of the jungle and we came across the military. And I don't know which one was worse out of the military or the bandits, both a little bit backwards um, and corrupt, you know? You got held gunpoint. Uh, several times yeah. then, was it? Wasn't it? Or just was that once? Not, not that once, it makes that much difference, really. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, the ones with the military, um, <clears throat> he was a drunken officer as well. So he was sort of like had his gun up, his strap was slipping off, slipping off his shoulder. He was catching the gun by the trigger with the barrel pointing up at me and my guy, you know. So we're sort of moving away from this barrel, trying to look to see if the safety catches on. Nightmare, man, nightmare. Wow. But, uh, you know, it was very sketchy like that. Um, even the river crossings, there's a lot of crocodiles in many of the rivers in Madagascar. So we would often have to be very cautious about how we were crossing these rivers, often building rafts using natural resources to get to the other side because we were unsure with what lurked beneath. Um, I caught malaria as well. Oh, your video is gone, mate. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There we go. Yeah, we're good. We're good. Sorry, man. I'm playing around with. I'm not, I'm not doing very well today. Going, you, you keep going, man. You've lost your flow three no times. Worries. Now. No, no, it's fine. No worries. <laughs> um, it was bloody good, though, isn't it? Considering you're on the other side of the planet. Oh yeah, you know? exactly. Really, and it's technology, mate. It's incredible, especially right now. Crazy. Well, what we're going through, isn't it, man? Like we, we you know, everyone thinks exactly. we feel like hard done by with isolation, but imagine what it would have been like before this technology, oh, even even ten, twenty yeah, years ago, oh, right? Dude. It'd be mental, wouldn't it? We'd all be banging our heads against the door. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, mental. Yeah. But um, no, man, highly recommend Madagascar. If you have ever, ever get to go that side of the world, yep. Madagascar is the place we were. The jungles up north were very difficult as well. So a lot of the time it's machete and hand sort of hacking our way through the bush. It was the cyclone season as well. So we've got lots of spiders, lots of leeches falling from the jungle canopy, often down our tops. I sustain nasty bites from spiders. Uh, at nighttime, for a grim example, I'd take my top off at night, sort of set the tent up in the jungle, um, and I'd have to ply off six, seven different leeches, flick Jeez. them out of the tent. Yeah, grim. We were sort of hunting, we were gathering, we were out of stock, so we are having to live off the land, collecting resources like fruit, vegetable. Um, little rodents that burrowed under trees that we could hunt. Um, mangoes, plenty of mangoes. I loved them climbing the trees to get the mangoes. And we had a photographer as well that joined us up north. And one river crossing was very intense. I didn't mention this on the, the Rogan podcast either, actually. I forgot about this one. But this was possibly scarier than the malaria story and my Gobi Desert story because it was someone else's life at risk. So it was my photographer um, felt like my responsibility. She was on my expedition. She's a bit of a Laura Croft, you know, really, really um, 
hardcore. And so I allowed her on the journey. Um, but the jungles are just brutal. Uh, and in order to get off the mountain that we were on and cross to the other side of this river, it was the cyclone season. It was in full flow. It was nighttime. And there was another storm coming. And it was either we cross this river now whilst we just about still can or if we stay on this uh, camp on this side of the river and that storm hits, it's going to be too full and we won't be able to cross it in days because we yep. needed to be off there. Uh, we were getting into the depths of the cyclone season, which you shouldn't be up on the mountain range. Um, and so we made the decision to cross that river. We were out of resources. We knew that there was a, a village on the other side potentially and that we could rest there and eat there for the next few days. And again, you know, head torches on. Um, a raging river it was so loud that we'd have to shout to hear each other's voices uh, we were blinding each other with our torches it was me my guide Max uh, Suzanne who's the photographer who joined me and her porter who's also Malagasy called Lever. and we came across a local who was just sat at the river that we were trying to cross and he's a local that lives there and he was too scared to cross it he was happy that he'd seen us because he knows the rocks um, step by step that we can use to keep our heads above the water. So he said, I'll take you across to the other side. We all need to link hands, but you need to follow me step by step because if you don't land your foot on the rock, you're gone, you're being swept away. So we did that, we formed this human chain. Me and Max had an argument. I said, we need to face upstream so that we can fight against the current and lean into the current. He was saying, we need to face downstream. That didn't make sense. I thought we're gonna be on our heels and we're just gonna slip and be washed away. Uh, cutting a long story short, we ended up facing downstream, a link in hands, and Suzanne lost her footing. She was in between mine and Max's uh, grasp. She lost her footing. Her head was going under. She had to kick up from the bottom. Each time she's coming up from a, a breath, she's screaming. And the weight of her rucksack's dragging her back, back down. I'm shouting over to Max, you know, have you got her? Uh, he's saying, yes, he's asking me. We're crushing her hand at this point. Um, holding her for dear life trying to pull her back up uh, and we did just about just about pull her back up she was able a shower turn around we formed the human chain facing upstream and we did just about make that make that river crossing um, she was in tears she sort of collapsed on the other side I was sort of full of adrenaline and happy that no one was injured so I was like whoa you know yeah yeah it. yeah, oh, yeah. God. to put it into perspective if one of us let go of her. The rage and the ferocity of the, the, the river and the rucksack on her back, she would have just sunk down to the bottom and she would have been plowed into the rocks. She was lucky enough not to get a bag trap or not to be sunk or not to hit her, heads on the, her head on the rock. She survived all of that. It's the Marvav River, which is crocodile infested. Oh so a bit God. further down Bearing in mind it's night time, so we can't see her. We can't oh. hear her because the roar of the river. She'll be washed down um, into the where the crocs are. So that was terrifying. That I I still think to this day how how did we? It's, it's a bit of a blur now because my adrenaline was so high. I don't really remember all of the fine details. I just remember us crushing her hand. You know, just yeah. not terrified to let go, but also terrified of her pulling us in as well because it was tough to fight the river. It was so powerful, um, but it was thanks to that human chain, thanks to that local as well, who's shown us the right footing. Terrifying, yeah. Don't know how we made that. Don't know how we Jeez. made that. Another, another very, very close call, then, mate. Um, 
crazy crazy but yeah mate i want to i wanted to just uh briefly go through your your most recent expedition as well uh yes is it the zangy river is how i pronounce it Zang? Yangtze. Yangtze, Yangtze. Terrible. That's it, yeah. yeah. Yangtze. 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 It's always a difficult one. Yeah. It's like when I used the hashtag Mission Yangtze, I, I knew that that would get people because you see it and you don't know how to pronounce it. It's a bit of a weird one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so so uh, River Yangtze, and that's 4,000 miles long, and it took you a year to complete it, and another world record under your belt. Um, just, yeah, just run through the, the overall, what, what springs to mind when you think of that challenge? I mean, what? How would you yeah, how would you how would you even start to describe that? So this was this what I'd probably describe as after that Madagascar. Um, I was looking. I was. I felt ready now. You know, I, I'd done some big missions, um, and I thought, what's the? I was in search for the biggest, baddest thing that I could find that hasn't yet been done. You know, yep. and so for myself, the Amazon River has been walked. The Nile River has also been walked. Uh, the Yangtze is the third longest river in the world, and that would present different challenges. The logistics challenges probably for the Yangtze are much tougher to plan for than the Amazon and the Nile, um, only because the sensitivity of China, you know? It's difficult to get to the source of the Yangtze, and you're crossing through provinces that are super sensitive. If you're wanting to carry satellite communications that's a whole different ball game and china they're not corrupt it's not like with the nile where you could potentially pay off for an extension of your visa or for a stamp or signature to give you access to the um, satellite with china everything's by the books you've got to be doing everything properly you know there's no paying anyone off there's no corruptness it is they're super strict and it's super sensitive. So I always knew that that would be the, the challenge with China. But for myself, yeah, third longest river in the world. We couldn't find any evidence to suggest that anyone had ever walked the Thailand from the true and scientific source of the Yangtze, which is in the Qinghai province near Tibet, all the way to its delta where it pours out into the East China Sea in Shanghai. Um, the walking route would be 4,000 miles. It would take me around a year to complete. Uh, 352 days at talk and i would be going it's one of the highest sources of any major river so it's at over 5100 meters above altitude so similar to mount everest base camp um in a really isolated area uh, sandwiched in between tibet and Qinghai province it took over two years to plan the logistics were tough we had to bring the guinness book of records involved we had to bring the china government involved the china uh, the green development foundation the wwf we needed about 13 or 14 organizations. We needed protection from the authorities, so we needed the police to have our back and agree to this um, in order to just get to day number one. To get how to how long did that plan take to actually plan that out then? Over two years. Over so two this was years. the biggest one, the most ambitious um, journey, obviously, I've ever, ever undertaken. Uh, maybe, maybe the most ambitious journey of the what, one of the most ambitious journeys of the decade, uh, just because it took a ridiculous amount of time and there was so much against me. And you know, after before we'd even made it to day number one, we'd already lost four members of the team. You know, we'd lost camera crew, we'd lost guides due to altitude sickness, due to fear of wildlife because there were bears, there were wolves, um, and due to just isolation. Your higher altitude, there's nobody there. It's just a remote place to be. It's a difficult mm. place to survive. 
Um, and so my first attempt to get to the source was effectively a failed attempt because my two guides, uh, sorry, my two film crew, they ended up going back with altitude sickness and one of them feared the bears because there were bears camp. Uh, the local had seen bears right where we were camping only the day before. And that was enough to freak out one of my videographers and say, you know, this is too much for me. I'm, I'm going. He left. Another one got altitude sickness. And then my Tibetan guide got altitude sickness and I had to take him off the mountains. The priority was to make sure everyone survives, gets back home safe and sound with their, with, to their families, um, in which luckily with this expedition, there were no deaths, no serious injuries as well. Um, but my guide was vomiting, bleeding from the nose. We'd gone off the mountains. I had to... Uh, with a different team and two weeks later we then tried again eventually we got to the true and scientific source of the Yangtze and then it begun and just to put into perspective you know they needed to there was an organization that needed to make me doctor for a year in order for me to um, get ambassadorship in order for me to then have access to the government in which we then once we were in communication with the government he would give us access to the authorities who could offer us protection, who would also give us signed off documents to say that I can use these satellite communications and to leave me alone. Still, I was taken in by the police um, five different times, taken to government officers and questioned, threatened to be deported as well. Um, but I had the backup. It was all about meticulous planning getting the right teams involved with this one. I had the best logistics team. I've got a very strong team even now in China. Um, so kudos to them. Uh, without them, it, it wouldn't have been successful. It was just mm. too difficult challenge day after day after day. Um, even before the halfway point, out of the 16 people that joined me in terms of film crew or guides, 10 of those were evacuated or abandoned the expedition um, before the halfway point. You know, very challenging, very difficult, minus 20 degrees Celsius, snow blizzards, stalked by wolves for two days, trying to escape from bear territory, trying to get off the mountains with the locals warning us, saying you shouldn't be here, you're here at the wrong season. The bears are now coming off the mountains, they're looking for food, looking for calories before they go into hibernation for the season, and you are just walking calories, you're on their menu, what are you doing here? So we faced all of this. Um, very scary times, but I believed in the preparation. I believed in the training, and I believed that we could get off the mountains before the true depths of winter um, and survive, which we did. And you had a Second team. So you had a team with you. So did you. you had a team with you because obviously a lot of your team dropped off pretty much right at the start. And then you, but you had yeah. a team with you obviously for the rest of the way. Then how did that work with your team? Because I know it was a solo. So, no, no, this isn't. St- so this is what people get confused with. Yeah, actually, yeah. is Mongolia. Mongolia was a solo and unsupported expedition. Mm. That's the only solo trip that I've done. Madagascar was with guides. It was with different guides. So I had one guide in the south who knows the southern section, a different guide for the middle section, and then a different guide who knows the jungles. Um, So it's not one guide all the way through. But that's not solo and it's not unsupported. It's just a world first to trek the entire length of the island via its mountainous ridge. So, So now with the Yangtze... The beauty is with this, there's no sort of, you know, I think with records now, it's very hard to find a genuine record. Um, I feel now they've got to be like solos or unassisted or or, or fastest. Mm. 
uh, or highest or quickest or you know yeah but the bottom line is though like team or no team no one else has ever come close to that right so it's a world record and I didn't mean to yeah, uh, so the, I didn't I, yeah. I, I realized it was a team for some reason I thought you had different uh, team members dipping in and out but basically you had uh, yeah obviously no different film members in and out in and out yeah. yeah I see I see so how did that work how did you rotate that I'm just curious as to how you because that's yeah, weird so we, man <laughs> Yeah, crazy. So about 70%, I say the team, about 70% of the whole journey was self-filmed. I was about solo for about 70%. I wish I wasn't. Yeah. Um, but I, I it just that. turned out, yeah, all of the film crew that they were sending, they just, they're great at what they do. Um, you know, these these the film crew that joined me were great at what they do, but it, 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 there's somehow being great at being a videographer but then it's different when you mix that into high altitude where you've got a camp as well. You know, we needed to find um, videographers who knew their stuff and who could um, film in the extremes. Yeah. And it just seemed a bit of a struggle to find that, find that balance. Um, so Mandarin Films, my production team, because we were filming, of course, for an international documentary, which hopefully should be airing in the next few months, depending oh, awesome. on this. Uh, yeah, we'll see how this goes. Is that supposed yeah. to be, where, where can we find that when it does come out? Um, that well, I should Depends. be able to announce maybe in the next two months. Oh, of course, uh, yeah. dates and channels. Yeah, amazing. I'll stay so tuned for that. Yeah, so you know we're in talks with some very big international channels. I can't mention just yet oh, fair. Uh, until things signed, really. But yeah, no, we filmed it, a two-part series, a documentary. Nice. Um, but a lot of it was self-filmed because the film crew were having to abandon. Or so with this one, what I was saying, yeah. So you got Mongolia solo on support, Madagascar, um, which was via the mountainous ridge and the Yangtze, which is just a first in general, like by foot, first to walk from the source to sea, which they are very difficult to find. Um, and that's why the Guinness Book of Records then jumped on board because they were like, wow, we don't normally do firsts. They've actually closed off firsts. I believe mine's the last first that they'll do unless something changes, but they opened a first back up uh, just to be a part of this China one and they've closed it now. No firsts. Um, which is crazy. So I was lucky to, again, thanks to the team in China. Um, and so with that, we were having, especially the second half, I was trying to make it as interactive as possible because with this one, we partnered up with WWF and organizations, environmentalists, conservation, to shout about plastic pollution, uh, sustainability, all of the amazing work that these environmentalists are doing. I believe that the world's, you know, it's full of negativity. You only have to switch on the TV and they'll choose to talk about a negative story. And I believe that, yeah, you know, negativity helps to raise awareness, but I think you can do it in a positive way. I think positivity spreads further positivity. So in Madagascar, for example, with the forests that are set on fire, that are burned down, rather than shouting about the forests are always on fire, why can't you shout about a small team that never get any credit or kudos whatsoever who are trying their best to protect the fire mm. that's been, uh, that's been, you know, the forest that's been set on fire. So that's what, how I always try to do things: is shout about amazing stories, but raising awareness about a certain, you know, uh, concern that's going on, but via an environmental group that are trying their best to protect it. You yeah. know, so that's what I find with the Yangtze River. There's so many organisations fighting to bring back species who are on the brink of extinction back into their flourishing numbers. It's all good to say, oh, no, you know, the, the finless porpoise dolphin is almost extinct. But why not shout about this amazing group of people who are fighting and risking their exactly. own lives in the Yangtze River and voluntarily not getting paid 
to bring back the number of these finless, um, finless porpoise dolphins because they're almost extinct. That's I think the there's painful thing about the media, it. though, isn't it? I mean, they obviously get attention. Negativity gets more attention, yeah. right? And it's like you do, it's not. It just doesn't get. It's, a, it's it's so painful, really, though, isn't it? Because you've seen on the front line the kind of people out there trying with their heart on their sleeve, like you said, voluntary as well, and and not getting. Uh, you know, obviously, people like you are raising awareness, but without you're the one in a you know a billion people who are willing to try these things, and it's like, yes, yeah, crazy. Yeah, no, that's it. That's it. But it, for me, it, it was about, um, yeah, shining the light on them. So I knew that my expedition was, it was getting out in the press. And so it was almost, I wanted to, I didn't want it to be about just me and my journey. Yeah, I don't like that. That's very selfish. I want it to be about the real unsung heroes, which is the environmentalists. Mm. You know, it is these group of groups of organizations who are doing amazing things, amazing things. Um, for example, that dolphin that I was just talking to you about, that's been on the brink of extinction for ages now. Every year, decreasing, decreasing. For the first time, I think it was last year or the year before, for the first time in recorded history, the, the numbers of dolphins have started to steady. And they believe in the next few years, they'll be on the increase. Oh, that's wow. important for the ecosystem of the Yangtze, because if they're, being on, if they're on the increase, then that means that they can survive in the Yangtze. That means that the Yangtze River is getting cleaner. So that means that pollution starting to decrease wow. in China, not just the Yangtze River, but all over. The air quality is getting better. There's more wind farms. There's more solar panels. They, they're doing the plastic bag ban. They've banned people from fishing from the Yangtze River within the, in the next 10 years. That's amazing. They're doing amazing things, but China don't shout about it. No, they, they don't, don't. They're not asked about the, the rest of the world giving them praise. They'll just do inside. They sent 19,000 soldiers out to plant trees. You know what I mean? Jeez. To cover, I think it was, I think it was, how much was it? 15,000 square kilometers planting trees. So they're doing a lot, but of course we just shout about because they are a huge polluter as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. They've done a lot of damage. The, yeah. the biggest polluters in the world, in fact. But um, they're also leading the way. You know, mm. they're also. You don't hear about none of that. See, it's crazy. Super fat. Yeah, yeah. You see, you uh, see, not, uh, just about the environment as well. It's a crazy thing now. Some of the stuff I'm hearing now about, obviously, because people are not out damaging the environment as much. Yeah, and yeah, whatever yeah. else is some. <laughs> crazy stories talking about dolphins they've seen dolphins in venice and stuff in italy now and even in china right have you heard any i've heard some crazy stuff about what's going on in china i know generally these movements and these groups of people are are doing big things right that's the main factor but obviously with this isolation stuff there's something going on there right a hundred percent yeah all over all over um the ozone layer is yeah healing i've seen that um what else did I see that I was impressed by? Oh, yeah, the satellite imagery, the NASA satellite imagery of China. So it was before the rest of the world was really uh, affected by COVID-19. But SATA, uh, NASA satellite took uh, imagery of China within the space. I think it was within the space of a month, the air pollution, and within the space of a month, how much better it was just because flights were grounded, travel, trains, cars, um so just keeping people locked because of the lockdown, really. Yeah, exactly. Just keeping people indoors as much as as they could. I think um, they they managed to smash out a year's worth within a month. Wow, it um, makes sense. Like you look is, at you look at planes alone, though, right? And cars. You did, that's the main thing, right? When it comes to damaging the environment, the combustion yeah, and the it's not chemicals. Just the planes alone, is it? It's the travel to and from the airport. Yeah, the exactly. And buses that you take to drive in, and yeah, it's, that's uh, right. Wow, all over really. They're saying that the air quality here in the UK is, is getting better as well. Really? It's, um, 
it's just given like they don't the earth heals fast, you know, and exactly. it will, long after we're gone, it will still Oh, recover. definitely, mate. Humans are the ones who uh, who do all the damage anyway, right? It's, it was totally fine until we came about, right? But that's what, that's what I saw. That's I've seen true. some funny memes saying stuff like, you know, the earth, this is like the earth saying, go to your room and have a think about what you've done, reflect about yeah, what you've done. You know, you've got plenty of time to think about that now, right? <laughs> yeah, it makes sense, exactly, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Hey, definitely. Uh, Ash, uh-huh. to talk to us, because um, I know I'm, I'm aware of the time now and stuff. I just wanted to talk uh, you to tell us quickly about the challenges and about like getting hunted by wolves and all of these things, which, you know, it's hard for us to, you know, elaborate fully now on everything. But from what I heard on the Joe Rogan show, I think the listeners should go and listen to that podcast, by the way, so you can, they can get more details on your uh, on your expedition, especially with the, uh, here we go again, oh crap, I'm not going to try pronouncing it again. But Yangtze, uh, Yangtze that's <laughs> the one, Yangtze River. But um, yeah, so you got you got stalked by wolves, obviously, uh, altitudes, run us through the main challenges. Yeah, I would say, yeah, stalked by wolves for two days. Um, only the day before that we started to be stalked by these wolves, they had killed a local lady. Uh, and these Tibetan guys were trying to warn us, but we didn't understand what they were saying. Luckily, we caught it on camera. Um, so there's that, the stalked by wolves, the bears, which were terrifying. Uh, the bears were the biggest threat. The Tibetan mastiffs, uh, I had to fight off two Tibetan mastiffs that came in for the for the attack. How did you fight them off? Um, I was so I had a few rocks in my hand. I'd throw the rocks, but then eventually they got so close that I couldn't even bend down to pick up any more rocks. Jeez. So you then got to make them flinch. So if you if you pretend that you're throwing rocks at them, they'll still like flinch, but they'll still still continue to come at you. Oh. Um, so I kept my rucksack on to just try to make myself look as big as I could. Uh, I was trying to keep both of them in front of me, but the inevitable happened. One got behind me, so I was now fighting from both sides. I had to kick one in the face. Um, the local couldn't even control their dogs, you know, that he would go to put the dog on the, the metal chain because they're normally staked in the ground, but this one wasn't. Um, and it just turned around and snapped at him. He was scared of his own dog and I was exhausted by it. I think it went on for about a minute and a half, if not two minutes. And I was more exhausted than a Muay Thai fight. You know, I was really like, wow, adrenaline high. These are big dogs, man. They yeah. fight off wolves snow leopards they scare away bears Jesus. you know they're there to protect the livestock and the nomads from these wild animals so um scary yeah the, the tibetan masters were a little bit more um worrying than the wolves i would say because it's more likely that you're going to get attacked by a mastiff than a wolf. Mm. wolves are all right they normally keep their distance mongolia had the gray wolves so they're a little bit bigger more intimidated china they're a little bit more smaller um and I was, a little, I, you know, I went out there with a healthy mind. The bears and the wolves will keep their distance, but the locals kept telling me otherwise. And, you know, mm. you should always listen to the local knowledge. They know best about their wildlife and their environment. So when they started telling me otherwise, I was just a little bit scared then, you mm. know. I was like, okay, videos of, of bears scratching down steel doors, breaking into huts, killing families and CCTV news. And they would send me these videos via the, the WeChat. Shh, just like, what you want to see. I don't, and I'm in a tent. Yeah, oh they're scrapping through steel doors. I'm in a tent, you know. Jesus. Um, so that was definitely scary. Um, yeah, a lot, man. A lot. The, the yeah. minus twenty degrees Celsius was very cold as well. Um, the landslides. Uh, one landslide sent my UK photographer, who would come to join me for two weeks. A landslide sent him home on day number one after six hours trekking with me, uh, just because he wasn't he wasn't comfortable with trying to navigate over this landslide terrain. Um, so he flew home. I was back to being solo, you know, 
lots of challenges. The malaria, a big one in Madagascar. I did almost lose my life by the time I eventually reached medical services. They said I only had potentially a few hours left before oh I God. would have slipped into a coma. So that was probably my closest. How did that feel? That how did that feel? Like, bearing in mind you were a few hours away from death, how did that actually feel, mate? I mean, we haven't talked much about that, but you've got to come a few. We haven't gone deep into uh, just first of all, just to track back a little bit. Mongolia, right? You almost died. How scared? What you were twenty three? Did you not get to a point where you were actually thinking, "Shit, this is scary. I'm going to die," or was it more a calm feeling of? Or just not not no. being not, not too naive to realise back then. No, I was definitely. It did hit the point where I thought, "Shit, this, I'm gonna I'm gonna die." That what that was what made me break my goals down. It was that realisation. It took took a while to hit me, but once it hit me, there's a scary realisation. I think I just said to myself, "If I don't keep getting up and pushing out from the trailer, I'm gonna die out here in the Gobi Desert." And I was walking past camel carcasses, and they were almost that reminder that whoa you know yeah. terrifying so i did know that but i just with the mongolia i just tried to focus on the goals i tried to focus on only one option and that option was was to survive um and so i tried to eradicate the possibility of death out of my mind as much as i possibly could because i'm a big believer in like the law of attraction vis- visualization and so i just continued to visualize 100 meters 100 meters five minutes 100 meters five minutes for four days that's all i did um with malaria I was a little bit different. That sort of took me. So that knocked my concentration. That started eating away at my mind. I was delirious on it as to a point where, as to a point where it it hit me one morning. I I was walking for days with malaria. I reached a community that had local transport, but I wasn't sure what I had at this point. I didn't know it was malaria. If I, it felt like similar signs and symptoms to that of the Gobi Desert, what I was suffering with. So I was drinking water, taking in sugar, salts, and being looked after. I was in a, with a, a tribal well, a community. Um, and there was one morning where I, I went from being strong and able uh, and capable to not even being able to pick up a, a glass of water, for example, you know? Even that would be energy draining. And I remember being half asleep, just in, just on the floor sleeping. And it was almost one part of my mind was screaming, you know, get up, get yourself out of here, you know, seek medical attention. And the other half, which was the half that scared me the most, it was almost like a, in my subconscious, it was telling me to go to sleep as it will be a painless death. You won't know you're dead. And that is the one that really woke me up. I was like, what the hell was that? Was that me accepting the fact that I'll die soon? Like, what was that? But that gave me enough energy to just try to get out of bed, um, tell that community. They rushed me straight to the nearest city, which was a three-hour drive away. Oh, my God. Um, uh, over sort of bumpy ground. Um, and then that's when I arrived at the hotel, which a doctor met me at the hotel. Because if I had malaria, then, you know, it only takes for a mosquito to bite me and then bite someone else. And they've got malaria, too. So I was effectively quarantined. And then she took took my blood and she said, I've got the deadliest strain of malaria. So there's four different strains. Uh, and I had the worst one, which is called falsiparum. And it usually kills you within 24 hours. Um, I was hanging on for five days. Five days later, I reached the medical services because I was still trying to take my anti-malarial pills. So I still had a, a small dose trying to fight the malaria. Um, but I was suffering with diarrhea and vomiting. So what went in came back out. Or what went in came on the other side, you know. 
Uh, and then once she said that, you know, potentially a few hours before slipping into a coma, if I had left it longer, so if I had stayed in bed a few more hours, maybe I would have never have left and made it to that to that city, which was scary. But after seven to eight days, so out of the four strains, the three lower lo, uh, lower strains can remain dormant in your system, meaning you've got malaria forever and they could poke their head uh, every now and then. However, the deadliest strain, if you're lucky to survive it and catch it within 24 hours, it's the only strain that you can completely eradicate out of your system. So I always try to look at a positive, even though it's a dark negative, is unfortunately I got malaria, but fortunately it was the deadliest meaning that it's completely out of my system right now. Wow. Uh, I don't have malaria. Um, and I recovered after eight days and I was backtracking the second highest mountain. I was back to normal. Jeez. I'd lost 13 kilograms, 13 kilograms in, a, in seven days. I think it wasn't eight days. Um, but I was back out there, you know, I was feeling my mum, my dad on the phone, of course, get what are you doing? You know, it's not a flu, it's not a cold, get yourself back home, it's the biggest killer in human history as far as diseases go, it's killed half of everyone who's ever lived, um, but I believed I was in safe hands, I was with the right doctor, I don't think they would have known how to deal with it really in the UK, when do they have to deal with malaria, they mm. don't. Um, whereas in Madagascar, unfortunately, they deal with it every day. And it was that realization that when I did push on, I started to see the damage of malaria. Families ripped apart um, because of malaria. Mm. Kids stripped of their education. Parents stripped of their work, being unable to provide food for their children because they've got malaria and can't go to work. So that's when I became a, a, an ambassador for malaria, No More UK. Um, and I was speaking in Parliament uh, to the UK government about my story, trying to help with an increase uh, with Annie Lennox and with our joint effort, not just mine and Annie, Annie as a whole team, uh, we were trying to increase the the funds from the UK government into the global fund by 20%, which if successful, uh, and as a group effort we were, we would go on to help save 8 million cases and lives of malaria within the next five years, oh, which man. was amazing. So I'd probably take a hit. I'd probably go through that again just to know that I can... You know, be a voice to talk about someone who's actually been through it in a country that's suffered with it and carried on trekking and witnessing other people who are, you know, some not as lucky as I was to, mm. to have the money to. And sometimes it only costs the same price as a cup of coffee wow. to get rid of malaria out of your system. But in Madagascar, it's a poor place. Sometimes they can't afford a cup of co coffee and lose their lives because of it. Jeez. So, you know, yeah, that's close to my heart, of course, after what I what I faced out there. So uh, always looking to try to give back and shout about it as much as I can. And I've done plenty of talks and awareness for Malaria No More UK because they believe that they can eradicate it within our lifetime, mm. which is amazing. You know, amazing, so yeah. fingers crossed. Yeah. Oh, mate, amazing. Do you think that's the main thing that gets you out of bed nowadays? Obviously, and I don't know whether you're going to be doing more expeditions, most likely knowing you. But other than that, I mean, is that what really drives you now, gives you purpose, is obviously the impact you're having? With these things. It is. It is. You know, with the first few years, I was just doing adventure and travel just for the pure love and the passion. Um, since now, with it being a career, I've seen that there's a hell of a responsibility. Uh, but now there's a, a much bigger reason. You know, it's not just doing it because I like doing it. It's actually doing it for very good reasons, for awareness, for money raising, for whatever it could be. Uh, environment as well. Huge uh, huge aspect of it you know very close to my heart hence why I've done it with every every journey 
um, when it comes to the environment because I have seen some places that have been beautiful. I've gone back there only a few years later mm. and seen them, you know, how destructive it's been in terms of plastics, in terms of pollution. Uh, you know, Mongolia, kids are being born in the capital city, especially in the winter, and after a few days they suffocate because of the air quality is not good enough. So oh the doctor God. has to say, evacuate the city. If you want your kids to survive, leave the city, which is crazy. But a lot of people don't really know about this. Um, so, yeah, if I can do these expeditions, um, but do them for good reason, for big responsibility, I will always, always do that. And this is just the beginning, mm. you know, 29. 29 years old, exactly. It's still young. Is it, you know, so there's, there are competition in this industry, but I'd say I'm a good five to ten years younger than the competition. So we've got a long way to go yet. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Finally, mate, is anything uh, else that you've got in the pipeline? So at the moment, then, what is it you're um you, you're doing like a fair bit of traveling, doing some talks, and how how are you? Because obviously the Joe Rogan must have been a big turning point for you in terms of the exposure you got through that. Yeah, big time. Yeah, uh, the team has expanded off the back of the podcast as well. I've now got a, a good team in WME out in Hollywood in, in Los Angeles. So they've jumped on board, some new agents there. Um, China's now recovering from the coronavirus, so I'm in talks with them again about future possibilities. Um, we're looking at the book. We're looking to release the documentary within the next few uh, months with my, production, uh, with my uh, distribution team called Bowman Bridge in Singapore. Mm. So, yeah, big things. And we have 10 different ideas of what we're looking to do next. It's just weighing up which one makes sense to go for first. But, yeah, this is just the beginning. Um, you know, if anyone wants to follow the journeys, Instagram is the place to be or the website. There is the book, Mission Possible. Um, and, yeah, man, you know, I'd like maybe my message to, to be for anyone listening, whatever vision, whatever goal, uh, whatever dream you have, you know, it's important to hold that vision, hold that dream, regardless of anyone else not seeing it for you. It doesn't matter. What's important is if you see it for yourself, break your goals down, don't lose that belief, continue to visualize, grind, work hard and make it happen. If you want it to happen that much, you'll find a way to make it happen. But, um, you know, mainly just stay safe, stay healthy during this difficult time. My uh, heart goes out there to anyone suffering or lost friends, lost family, uh, family members etc so you know stay strong stay healthy and stay productive lovely mate that's amazing great way to wrap it up i'll put all of the uh, details in the show notes anyway including your book um thank you very much for your time mate really appreciate it ash thank you martin appreciate be, be that. safe over there mate you be safe yourself now you yeah too. you too take care now. cheers ash bye mate